Hi, and welcome back to the Legal Diaries podcast. I'm your host, Danny. I'm a recently qualified barrister who works in human rights and public interest law, and I also do some consultancy on the side, as well as running the website www.legaldiaries.ie and the Instagram page at legaldiaries.ie. On the podcast, we dive deep into all things health, fitness, mindset, studying, habits, dating and career, and probably so much more. I will aim to bring you the tools and actionable steps to smash your goals, inspire you to take bold action, and above all else, put yourself first. Hello everyone and welcome back to another Legal Diaries podcast and happy 2021 which sounds really strange to say because myself and my guest today are recording this um, in the end of 2020 so we're just counting down the days Um, but today I'm joined by Dr Michelle Killian um, and we're going to talk about the super important topic all about mindfulness um, and stress management and burnout and just really reflecting um, on 2020. So I might just hand over to Michelle to introduce herself. Okay, thank you, Danielle. And yes, as you correctly said, my name is Michelle Killian and I work in the area of wellness. Um, I'm a researcher and currently I'm looking um, at uh, research on the impact of uh, disruption around COVID, COVID and how it's impacting on people's well-being. Um, so that will be ongoing into um, next year. Um, I've looked at numerous other areas um, in relation to well-being. Um, I have a background in research, as I mentioned, and also um, I'm a yoga teacher and I teach mindfulness. Um, so over the past couple of years, I've been doing quite a lot of workshops with uh, companies in this area, um, which has been very well received. But I, I think that you know the general public are now beginning to understand just the impact that lifestyle can have on their well-being. Yeah, no, definitely. It's like, it's a big, I felt like in 2020, there was a big kind of self-care movement. Mm. Um, And it's a thing. It's like one of those buzzwords of 2020 was like self-care and mindfulness. And um, so maybe if we just kind of take kind of a broad overview um, and reflect maybe on 2020 and maybe what you've seen through your research so far. So the impacts of the social social isolation isolation um, and COVID-19? Well, I think that there's been um, very diverse effects from this. It hasn't impacted everyone in the same way, apparently. Um, So for some people, it appears to be a good thing, or certainly they've been able to take some good out of it. Um, Certainly, I would um, point towards the increased awareness around mental health and well-being is is a positive thing for sure. Um, but I think that for a lot of people, they are struggling and certainly in terms of the social isolation, which is a key area. Um, so yes, so I think that people are dealing with this in very different ways and some people have managed to make it work for them. Um, but I think that overall, there's it has had a hugely negative impact on most people one way or another. Um, And certainly going into 2021, I think we're going to see even more of that as the economic effects of this are are begun or people begin to feel that a little more. 
Yeah, because it's it's so individual because everyone has their own kind of circumstances surrounding um, everything that kind of happened with COVID-19. Like no one story um, of how people were affected as far as I've come across has been the same. Um, but you wrote this really good piece um, for the King's Inns Fitness Challenge and you focused in on social connection. Um, and it's not a thing that I ever really think about um, quite actively, but like can you kind of explore that and say kind of why social connection is so important for humans yeah well social connection is really central to our to our being um like if you just take a step back um you know a couple of million years you know we did evolve out of the savannah so you know very very important at that time would have been to have a tribe or a connection with other other individuals of your own species, because that helped to protect you from dangers in the environment. So again, you know, one person could take, you know, could be on watch while the rest of the tribe slept. Or if you wandered out into the savannah on your own, you probably were going to become lunch very quickly for some giant mammoth or a tiger. Um, so it, it benefits us from a survival perspective to have um, social connection. And of course, as we evolved and we developed this cognitive ability to be able to understand the minds of other people and to be able to understand that other people have different perspectives to us this gave us an advantage because we can then begin to strategize and try to understand that you know other people might want our resources and how to i suppose how to manipulate in relationships so that we can um, improve our survival chances so that's kind of basically it but it's very very important for us to have social connection because not only for um, you know protective measures, but also because it seems to benefit us from an immunological point of view. Um, being around other people seems to provide some um, immune benefits. And um, like even if you think about it, like if you go into a, a, a public bathroom and you know somebody hasn't flushed the toilet, we don't think about these things. But you'll actually avoid using that toilet. You'll go into another booth. And the reason is we're trying to avoid infection. And I think this is very relevant in the time of COVID because there is a certain degree of, I suppose, um, stigma around, you know, people don't want to say, oh, you know, I, I was infected or anything. And a lot of that is actually biologically driven. It's because infection is a threat to our survival. So yeah. it's really, yeah, yeah. So it's really important that we have this social cohesion and that we have, you know, other people around us to protect us from all these, I suppose, threats. Yeah, that's so interesting though, because I remember like back away in my undergrad, I would have done um, a module, um, it was a sociology module and it was talking all about like social connections and social capital. Mm -hmm. And it's a thing I never think of in my day to day, but then it's become so apparent during COVID because like people can't see people um like, like unless they're in your bubble or depending on where you are in the world and and what your restrictions are like so I think it's become more evident so say if you were introvert before I think you've been forced to become more introvert and then if you're extrovert like you're, you're become you're having to adapt to a lifestyle that you're really not used to Yes, that's a very good point. And certainly there has been some work done in that area around um, different personality types. But even beyond that, I, I just think that it's so innate for all of us. So even if you are a loner, um, there's no doubt about it, that knowing that you are isolated, it can have an impact on you as well. Because a lot of about um, social isolation really is down to perception. So you can be very, uh, 
you can be on your own but not feel socially isolated and conversely you can be in a crowd and feel very socially isolated so friends are really important to us and i think i agree with you completely danielle that prior to covid19 we probably took that for granted and particularly younger people who would have you know interacted a lot through social media and through uh, online platforms so a lot of their engagement and their social interactions were very superficial and I think that they're beginning to appreciate the importance of real face-to-face -face contact now, which is really important. And in fact, I was only reading a piece of research recently, which looked at um, four different cities in, in China. And what they found was that they weren't very well able to explain it, but they, they set out looking to try and prove, you know, whether they were trying to, trying to prove if um, that... Uh, you know, online interactions would, you know, be just as good as a face to face. And they actually found the opposite that actually um, you could predict quality of life based upon face to face interactions with friends and family, but you couldn't predict it based upon your online interactions. That's so interesting because that is so, even I see quite a difference. Say, I've a, my brother is eight years younger than me, about eight and a half years, um, and he is very screen time heavy and he will communicate with all of his friends on through kind of gaming apps and stuff like that and other than like school or college or something they very rarely like will see each other interact with each other face to face but that's just normal whereas like when I was younger you like couldn't see your friends unless you went and knocked on their door um and we just didn't have that kind of being on a screen and having those online kind of say relationships or friendships with people um yeah that's super interesting i'd love to read that study actually i'd say i'd say it was very interesting yes yes and i i think the you know the other point that you made there around um you know the way different generations and the way people interact and particularly with online um what's very interesting about online interactions is that they tend to be quite transactional so there's a lack of spontaneity like when you meet somebody in uh, in person you have to deal with all that complexity of real human interaction where you might say something that embarrasses the other person or embarrasses yourself and you have to kind of dig your way out of that hole but when you have online you can you can orchestrate everything you don't have to respond if you don't want to you can plan what you want to say and then you can delete it and rewrite it so a lot of it is much more contrived and that does away with that that challenge that a lot of us have to face with it, real face-to-face -face interactions but that's also part of being real and human and alive yeah because i always say i always joke to my brother i'm like you can't mute people in person <laughs> like <laughs> if you don't want to talk to someone or interact with someone on a kind of day-to-day -day basis like you don't have like you can't delete you can't block you can't mute you can't do all those things and those are like skills that you need to be able to kind of have everyday interactions with people Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and maybe if we kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about, so we've kind of focused on why we're such social creatures um, and what social isolation and loneliness can be. What are some, how, how do you recommend for people to overcome it? Um, especially during times of COVID when maybe they possibly can't see a lot of people. Yes, and that's a very good question. Um, and I'm glad you asked it because I always like to focus on, you know, what we can do about things. I'm very pragmatic about a lot of this. You know, you can theorize forever, but you have to find, you know, try and provide some solutions. Well, I think the first thing that people need to um, do is realize their limitations. There's no doubt about it. It's not the same. 
Um, that's not to say that social interaction online, um, that we shouldn't use it. And certainly it provides a substitute um, and it, it is important to use it insofar as we can to help buffer us against the effects of loneliness. So, you know, the kind of share the screen, you know, have a kind of a drink with the family, whatever it might be. Um, that said, I think that, you know, doing something for someone it's really interesting. If you volunteer for somebody and you actually do something for somebody, it actually helps you to feel less lonely. And there has been large scale studies done on this all over the UK on volunteering work and how this impacts on the people who actually volunteer. So it has a benefit both for the receiver and the person who volunteers. And what I would say is particularly during COVID-19, it's a great opportunity to do something like that. You know, offer to collect some groceries for your neighbor or, mm. you know, drop something over, you know, all that kind of stuff, help them with the garden, whatever it might be. And you can still keep your social distancing. Mm, yeah. And I know our local cafe as well, um, in our local villages, they have a sign up on the door and they're looking for volunteers to volunteer on Christmas day and do drop off of Christmas dinners to kind of some of the more isolated, um, older persons in the community who may not cook for themselves, but may not interact with other people. Um, and even if you look for things like that, like there's so many opportunities at the moment to volunteer. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, with the first lockdown, we saw a lot of that. We saw a lot of people really getting, you know, with the community spirit and getting out and engaging and, and you know, doing all that stuff. But now a lot of people have become more, you know, self-focused and kind of, you know, I think they've become worn out with the whole thing as well. So it is important to kind of remember that, that it also benefits you. But I think as well, you know, even setting up something like a local community buddy system can be really effective. So it's basically just, you know, allowing everybody to have this maybe a platform online. I don't know how you might might organize it, but I'm sure there's ways of organizing it within communities that you have a buddy system. So people have, or, or even in organizations, you could do this where people just have a contact should they need somebody to talk to. Yeah, yeah, because that is, because some people you don't realize, especially in the workplace, when you don't interact with people outside of the workplace, you don't understand their reality outside. So maybe that was their social outlet, like coming into work and being able to socialize with their colleagues, but they actually live quite an isolated life outside of work. Um, but obviously this year um, in particular has been huge for, for stress levels for people and loneliness and social isolation. But I find the Christmas period in particular can be a very hard time for people. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so have you got any kind of specific things of how to manage your health and well-being as we head into kind of 2021 and gear ourselves up for what is likely, hopefully not, um, but likely going to be some other kind of more restrictions and another like lockdown again come January in Ireland? Yes, really, really important. Um, um, particularly if we do go into another lockdown, a lot of people don't realize, you know, there's a lot of focus on, you know, waiting for the vaccine and, you know, all of this, but a lot of people don't realize there's so much they can do themselves. A lot of, and a lot of it is about lifestyle. And um, one thing that I'm a little disappointed about not hearing in the public domain is more focus on improving people's immune system. And this is something which can, you know, not only help you to deal with the stress around COVID, but also should you become infected, it will really increase your chances of you know, having a positive outcome. And to improve your, your um, immunity, very simple things you can do. Um, I can't emphasize enough, sleep. 
Um, and, you know, sometimes people, it's so simple, um, but it is really important. And there are very, very good reasons why it is important, just because um, when you sleep, your body goes through cycles. And when it goes through these cycles, it um, goes through cellular repair. Now, if you imagine, you know, you have a car and you have a very nice car outside. If you never bring it for a service year after year after year, you can't really expect, you know, the wheels not to fall off after about 10 years. Yet, you know, we live our lives without really giving ourselves a chance to sleep enough and rest enough. You know, we focus so much on work, work, work and, you know, keeping going, you know, keeping up with everything that we forget the importance of sleep. It's not just, you know, you close your eyes and you kind of, you know, get some shut eye because you're tired. There's a really important function for sleep. And that is to um, consolidate memory, to um, repair, cellular repair, um, to um, regenerate nerve cells in the brain. There's just so much going on when you sleep. Mm. So that would, be the, that would be the first thing. The second thing I would say is everybody, particularly in Northern hemispheres, um, should take vitamin D supplements. And um, a, a researcher um, in Dublin, actually with the TILDA study, it's, a, it's a, a longitudinal study being conducted in Ireland around the um, life course of people living in Ireland, growing up in Ireland. And he's done quite a lot of research around this area on vitamin D, but it has been go ongoing around the world. But vitamin D is, you know, a lot of people think it's a vitamin just like other vitamins, but it's actually a lot more than that. It's an, it's an immune regulator. And um, it's very important in Northern hemispheres to take a supplement in the winter. The reason being is because we don't get enough sunlight, which brings me to the other point, particularly if we're into a lockdown again in January, when we have the shortest days, it's very important that people get outside. And mm. um, again, yeah, because what this does is it helps to regulate your hormones. And um, so early morning, it's really, really good to get out early morning because the wavelength in the daylight at that time of day is really, really good for setting your biological clocks. Inside oh. your, yes, yes, inside your body, people usually think about just sleep as being the biological clock, but every cell in your body has a biological clock and every gene has a timing sequence to turn on and turn off. So digestion, your liver, your heart, all of the different functions in your body are, are, are basically tied into the clock, tied into the, the, the light cycle. And every morning you get up, that, that clock is reset by the daylight. So your, 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 um, your, your brain picks up the information through, through the wavelengths, just to put it simply. And it, it basically tells your brain what time of day it is to reset all those clocks in your body. So if you're staying up late and you're under artificial light and you're looking at a screen until very late at night, your body clocks get confused. So you end up hungry late at night, you get the munchies, then you end up gaining weight. So it has so many knock-on effects. So daylight is really important during the day and then turning down the lights at night. So you really oh. need to be, yeah, we really need to be mimicking that kind of savannah environment insofar as we can, um, natural daylight cycles. Yeah, that's so interesting because it wasn't till, like it's as I've gotten older that I've started to appreciate sleep more, but also it wasn't until this year until I actually properly started to read kind of articles and books on sleep and how important it is and how to kind of certain things that you should be doing. And um, 
and it's been on my list for so long to get vitamin D because I know that's another thing that I'm like probably severely lacking like every other um, Irish person but it's so interesting about the morning thing though because I've even shifted kind of my because I'm working from home predominantly at the moment you have I have the flexibility to kind of move my work hours around so I've shifted them forward um so I start earlier, but the main premise is that, so hopefully I can then get out into the daylight because it's so sad when you start work and it's dark and then you finish work and it's dark and you just don't get that kind of in-between sunlight to adjust your body. Um, yes, actually, and I'm actually interested in, um, part as part of the research that I'm going to be doing in the following year, I'm going to be looking at that. Um, it's what we call um, chronotypes. So people have a preference, either as what we call morning larks or um, night owls. So some people, there's a genetic predisposition to, you know, either having a body clock which likes to get up early and go to bed early or a body clock which likes to stay up late and get up late. And one of the things that I, I, I'm kind of interested in, in exploring throughout this process of COVID is whether people adjust their own body clock because they have the flexibility. Yeah. And, and does it make, I mean, I suppose I could ask you the question, um, you know, does it make you feel better to, to live in synchronicity with your own body clock? Yeah, like I'm, I've always been, as I've gotten older, much more of a morning person. Um, but I found as I've adjusted back, I'm a lot more productive in the mornings. And by about 8pm at night, my brain just kind of shuts off. And it's like, even I, when I was started studying and I was training for the bar, like I couldn't, after a certain point, I just couldn't study anymore. Whereas like, I would get up and do work out in the morning and do all that before work. And I'd happily get up at like 6am in the morning and then go to bed by like 9pm that night. But it's funny because my boyfriend and I were just chatting about the other day, like he cannot do mornings and never has been able, but he will stay up late to get a workout in and do all that kind of stuff. But he'll then force himself to get up early for work the next day. But if it was a weekend, he'd sleep in. Um, but yeah, but I find I'm much more content in myself if I just stay with the even at the weekend like I've gotten out of the habit of being like oh it's the weekend I can have a sleep in whereas I'm like oh maybe I'll have an hour more and get up at like 8 a.m or 9 a.m and it's still a sleep in but it's not like knocking me off kilter completely and resetting my body clock for the week after if that makes sense oh totally and you know um, it's what we call as the social jet lag so it's when people um, have a, particularly your, in your boyfriend's case, you know, people who tend to be night owls and tend to be, you know, feel better being more productive later in the, in the day. Um, what we find, or certainly the research has found, um, and there have been studies done on shift workers and particularly um, longitudinal studies in the UK and the, the United States over about 20 or 30 years, tracking people who do um, shifts. And what they found was that people who tend to be night owls have much higher rates of risk for things like cardiovascular disease, um, diabetes, et cetera. And the reason being is because, like I mentioned earlier, it's not, just your, it's not just your sleep clock that gets disrupted. It's also your liver clock and your insulin and all of these other processes. And um, particularly for someone like your boyfriend who's going to bed late, what, what they find is they, people like that will force themselves to get up early because that's what our society demands. Whereas people who are morning owl or sorry, morning larks, 
they tend to suffer less from these, these or have a, a lower risk of these disorders. And the reason being is you can always go to bed earlier. Um, whereas, you know, people who go to bed later still have to get up early. So they miss out on, on essential sleep. It's also to do with the timing of sleep. It's really important to get to bed before midnight and preferably around um, 10 or 10.30 because it is between 10 and 2 o'clock that you do most of the repair work, most of the biological repair. Because oh. I'm always like, I, it's a thing where I'm like, I need to be asleep before midnight. I'm like, anything past it, I'm like, is insane. Um, but I usually fa fall asleep probably around 11 because I'm trying to do this whole like wind down routine now where I move tech away from me. I and I love reading, so that's what I. That's how I kind of focus my brain into sleep mode. I know when I pick up a book and start to read at night, um, that is me kind of winding down for the day. Um, but that's so interesting, um, and that kind of leads me on to the next kind of part of my question of ways to prevent and relieve stress. Um, so obviously sleep being one um, and a huge one, I thought I'm so interested to see how that study goes next year. Yes, yes. And um, so sleep would be one thing. The, the next thing that you, you would be very important would be um, regularity of eating. So again, the timing of eating, if you want to adjust your body clock, you need to also adjust your eating clock. So if you want to go to bed earlier, you need to eat a little bit earlier and adjust your timing. Um, but it's also the type of foods that we're eating. Very important, particularly during this time, is to eat you know, immune boosting foods, things like mushrooms, um, lots of greens, lots of veggies, alkalizing foods, um, go a little bit easier on the, the meats and stuff, and particularly red meat. Um, low consumption of red meat is, is very beneficial for us. Um, some people like to eat meat, so that's fine, but I would certainly say limited. Um, you know, lots of fish, um, omega-3 oils, very, very beneficial. And also they lower, um, they, they boost your immunity, but also they lower inflammation, um, which is often associated with stress. Um, the other thing would be um, yes, you know, stay away from things like too much sugar. And I know it is Christmas and everyone's going to be enjoying Christmas cake and indulgences and lots of wine and drink and all of that. But, you know, just remember, you know, moderation and um, there's no, you know, certainly enjoy yourself, but, um, you know, just bear in mind moderation and uh, your body will thank you for it in 2021. That's, um, that's all super interesting. Um, I'm, I, part of me is like, I really need to cut out on sugar. <laughs> I think, I think we all feel that way. <laughs> like, and I'm not even that bad, but at the same time, I'm like, I like, like say added sugar. I'm like, I definitely cut curbish out of my diet in some different ways, but I find it really interesting what you say about the diet overall, because I read um, the study last year of the sustainable diet. I think it was last year that the sustainable diet and they were talking about the best, most effective diet for you as a person, but also for the environment. And it was very much like what you're saying. It's like um, limit red meat, limit meat consumption, eat more fish um, and have kind of leafy greens and stuff like that and all that in your diet. So that's really interesting. Yes. And um, when, you know, when you talk about diet, I mean, one thing that I'm always very careful of doing is 
I, I never prescribe a diet um, to anyone. Um, I think even the word should be banned. You know, it, it's, it's a way of life. And, you know, the minute that people think about going on a diet or adopting a particular type of diet, and every year you're going to see the new kind of fad come in, you know, this is the way to eat or this isn't the way to eat. And it's all about do's and don'ts, you know, rather than, you know, eat everything you enjoy in moderation, but also it's really about focusing on the balance. And that's something I always try to emphasize with people. It's the balance that matters. There's nothing wrong with having some chocolate. There's nothing wrong with, you know, having some red wine or white wine or a beer or whatever it is you like. It's about, you know, overall balance. And if you're eating overall a really, you know, good, nutritious, and I always focus on nutrition as opposed to calories. Um, you know, it's, it's about, you know, eating very nutritious foods. One thing that you will find is that it is possible, believe it or not, to be overweight, but undernourished. And a lot of people don't understand that. They, they, they think that if a person is overweight, they have to be getting all the nutrients, but you can still be overweight and be undernourished because you're eating a diet, which is not rich in essential minerals and vitamins. Mm. And even our diets today overall are depleted of a lot of these things because the soil is depleted. So it's really important to eat organic when you can, if you can afford it. But of course, not everyone can, but certainly wash your fruit and veg and eat, you know, a good balance of, you know, stuff that comes from the ground, you know, um, and they've done um, numerous studies all over the world and they tried to find, you know, what was the best diet in the world? You know, what was the single best diet? And what they found was there was no single best diet, but what there was, was a common factor is to eat locally grown food. Yeah. Close to nature as possible. And, um, you know, and all these diets varied very differently in terms of their composition, but that was the one key factor. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting because like I, I'm really big on sustainability. So one thing I'm trying to do is buy in season and locally sourced mm. as much as possible. So there's kind of like a win-win. So it's like a win for the environment and a win for you. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really interesting. We might just um, kind of sum this topic up then um, by one thing I find is there's healthy stress and then there's unhealthy stress. So like healthy stress to me is the adrenaline you get before you go into a big exam or a meeting or something like that and all that kind of stuff. Or, um, but like unhealthy stress is when you're like lacking sleep, you've lack of concentration and all those. So what are those kind of, how for someone listening, would you differentiate those two? Um, well, they can, they're very closely related, in fact, and biologically, you know, in terms of the nervous system, they're not that different. Um, and this is where it gets really interesting. Now, it's quite complex, but I, I'll try and simplify it as best I can. Um, a lot of it has to do with your perception. So it's how you perceive something. And you can do very interesting little thought experiments around this, um, where you get people to visualize two different scenarios and try and imagine the type of emotions that they feel in relation to them. And you can demonstrate to them the difference between how their perception can change the emotion that they experience, whether it's excitement or fear. So for some people, and this also explains why some people can go on a roller coaster and feel absolutely thrilled and excited about the whole idea, whereas for other people, it's absolutely terrifying. So a lot of it has to do with your perception, but also it has to do with your overall load. It's what we call the um, allostatic load. So if you are undergoing quite a lot of stress in your life from a lot of different areas, 
So say, for example, you have a stressful job or maybe you're worried about losing your income or um, you're not able to you know, pay your mortgage or just even the uncertainty around COVID can be enough to um, increase people's stress. And then what happens is something happens, like maybe you know, a close relative dies or gets very ill, and that just basically tip, you know, pushes you over the edge into distress. Um, and that's that negative stress that you experience. But what I would say is that for people, um, it's really important to learn how to breathe. Um, because breathing can actually calm the nervous system. And by learning how to breathe, particularly long exhalations, deep and slow, relaxed exhalations, very, very easy. It's what we call 7-Eleven breathing. And you'll find videos or, you know, online, YouTube, anywhere, and it'll demonstrate how to do this very easily. But 7-Eleven breathing is something I always teach to people who have any, any type of anxiety or stress in their life. And you can experience the benefits of it straight away. So it's really, really powerful, but simple method for helping to reduce your stress. That's so interesting. I'm literally writing down 7-Eleven breathing as we speak. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, but I'm notorious. Like I used to be kind of so good for it when I was really sporty when I was younger. Because I, I was able to kind of like, but I was I went like about it. If, uh, like a year ago when everything was was much more normal than it is now I was um I had a personal trainer in the gym together and I was like lifting weights or is doing something and she was just like you need to breathe like she was just like you don't need to hold your breath when you do the exercise and it's a thing that I've noticed kind of every day when I get into kind of say stressful situations sometimes I can not stop breathing but not like not regulating my, I don't know how to explain it. Like I kind of just pause and then I realize, oh, I'm not even breathing properly at the minute. Yes. And that goes back to our very first point when we started this talk, which is, you know, it's biological. I mean, if you think about it, if you were out in the savannah and there was a rustle in the bush, what would happen is you'd hold your breath because you don't want to be detected. You wouldn't want to move. You wouldn't want to make any noise. So that's a very natural response to a potential threat is to hold your breath. And that's why it's very important when people are stressed to get them to actually breathe, even though it seems counterintuitive to them. And um, so, yeah, the breath is really, really important. And like what you said, like if, if I was to just instruct people, you know, here just to breathe really shallow and quickly, very quickly they would be they, you can induce a state of panic in somebody because just by doing that physically your nervous system is told to you know pump blood faster increase blood pressure um you know reduce kind of um digestion all of these things happen for for very very good reasons so the stress response isn't your body turning in on itself or doing something like strange it's actually a way of protecting you and that's something really important for people to remember it's a very natural response to an unnatural situation Oh, very interesting because I found because I grew up with asthma and like I still have it but like whenever I was ever to have an asthma attack when I was younger the last time I had an asthma attack the first thing people tell you is they're like okay slow your breathing but that's the last thing you can possibly concentrate on you start to try breathe really quickly mm -hmm. um but it's so but it is so true because even I find if I'm struggling to get asleep at night and I've a lot kind of racking around in my brain if I slow my breathing and just relax my body my body eventually just kind of calms itself and then I fall asleep yeah, and actually through that process of breathing slowly, 
your nervous system actually signals the muscles to relax. So it's, it's, it's very physical. You know, people often talk about mind over matter, but that's actually, this is actually matter over mind um, and a way of overcoming that stress. Yeah. Oh, wow. So interesting. Um, we might just now um, switch it up and um, just, I could literally talk about this all day because I've been like reading about it all year. <laughs> and thank you so much um, for coming on and chatting with us. Um, both episodes have been super, like there's so many good tips in there and they'll be so useful for people, especially as we head into 2021, um, because I, I envision it's going to get harder before it gets better again for us. Yes, yes, I would say so too. And thank you very much, Danielle, for having me on your show. And um, it's been great talking to you as well. Thank you for tuning in to another Legal Diaries podcast. Be sure to follow along on all the social media channels at legaldiaries.ie on Instagram, www.legaldiaries.ie and on Twitter, it's legal at legaldiaries underscore ie. Thank you.